Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be beginning our look at the third and final volume of the Baroque Cycle, which contain, is called the System of the World, which refers both to like a, you know Newton's concept in Principia Mathematica, but also commerce and modern banking and the modern capitalist system. Um, and some other things I think are hinted at as well in that. Um, now, this is made up of three books. The first is called Solomon's Gold. Uh, the second is called uh, Currency. And the third is called The System of the World. Um, now, unlike the other two volumes of the Baroque Cycle, uh, this one covers, the, all three books here just cover less than a year of time. So it starts in January 1714, after Daniel Waterhouse arrives on Minerva in London. And it, it's, you know, so it's about January and then really the action picks up around April. Much of the first three months that he spends in London is doing various errands for people <clears throat> and for himself and things and just catching up. Uh, things really pick up in April and then uh, they culminate in the final months of, of 1714. 17, so... Um, yeah, I think these episodes will probably be shorter uh, than um, the previous ones for the series, mostly because the the stories here are much more condensed novels. I guess they're not these sprawling epics so much, even though there's there's kind of an epic scale to them, and that remains. It's it's really in this short period of time in this one year, Stevenson kind of weaves together a conclusion to most of the themes. And ideas that he picks up. Um, now, it, it's still this very mixed type of novel. It's part romance, part pirate, part heist story, part uh, philosophical reflections, part uh, political drama. Um, all these things are still there. So it's still got that feel of uh, as the rest of the Broke Cycle and has some of its greatest moments. But, um, you know, it's not quite the confusion. It's not quite as fast-paced and exciting and, and dramatic as the confusion and it's not as, as kind of philosophically rich I think as, as, as the first volume Quicksilver but it is it is does wrap up I think pretty it's a pretty satisfying way um, the the series so Solomon's gold uh, book six of the broke cycle the first one in this volume um, covers basically Daniel's return to, to London, him running a bunch of errands, uh, catching up with, with Newton and Roger, Comst uh, Roger Comstock, the, the, the Marquis of Ravenscar, his son, meets a few new characters, um, such as Saturn. Saturn's maybe the most like fascinating new character that's introduced in this story, um, who, you know, he... He's kind of a suspicious person. He's, he's kind of a, like a bandit of sorts, a local bandit, but he's also really interested in technology. He's like a, a, a clockmaker of sorts. Um, and, 
you know, and he ends up being sort of associated with Jack Shafto in a in a in a in a way. I read somewhere online someone speculating that that's like a it's a stand-in for Neil Stevenson because the description kind of fits with this you know this big black beard and then all that. But you know, I'll I'll take that. I'll accept that because he sort of is just a character floating around and giving you know, talking about technology in fascinating ways. Uh, we'll we'll meet him I think in the next episode. Um, and it. Basically, the first half of Solomon's Gold, though, covers Daniel's, like, wanderings around London. And then the second half really all is centered on one day, more or less, or just a, maybe a couple days. But the, the last hundred pages, at least, of this, this book covers just a single day, uh, which involves Jack uh, Shafto's heist on the Tower of London, and specifically the Mint, which is something he apparently has been building up for, for, for almost a decade, ever since he was recruited by the King of France to be his his agent in in London set to destroy um, British currency. It took him a long time to get it together. The war's over. The war of the Spanish system's over, but he's still uh, doing his job for uh, the King of France, uh, you know, c- committed uh, through his love for Eliza and the promise that Eliza would be well taken care of and protected if, if Jack continues to serve, serve um, the French court, I guess, or the French king, I should say. So, anyways, let's uh, let's just uh, jump into the story. Um, so, the first chapter we get here is uh, um, is, is uh, well, of course, these chapters don't have names; they just have locations and times. But it's set in Dartmoor, uh, January fifteenth, nineteen fourteen. And I do will say, since this whole book basically is set mostly in London, there is a time when Daniel's in. I mean, this whole volume. All three of the last books are pretty much set in London and in the environs, although they do spend a little bit of time in Germany and in book seven, currency. But uh, it's it's nice because we get a nice map of London in the inner cover, a map of the Tower of London, which a very detailed map of the Tower of London and the Mint, which is really crucial for uh, especially the end of Solomon's Gold, um, and a map of the Thames, Um as well because all of this is going to be the geography is kind of important here although we do start in dartmoor dartmoor is like in um like in cornwall or somewhere it's, it's not far from plymouth so this is basically where the she was left off dan daniel was left off uh you know the minerva um and he met some people there um that, now the people he ends up meeting is it's really interesting. He meets Thomas Newcomen. So Thomas Newcomen, of course, was is often seen as the the origin of the industrial age, the beginner of the industrial age by the creation of the steam engine, right? And the steam engine was really created to pump out water from mines, so miners could go deeper into the into the into the ground, right? Coal mines, for instance, if when you got to groundwater, would be really inaccessible. So the steam engine was created to pump out the these mines clear them so you could get more ore or coal or whatever and then especially for coal mines since it was fed by the coal that they were dragging out it was really easy to keep these steam engines going so that's often seen as the beginning of the industrial age but i I made the case when we were reading the confusion that i actually think we see the roots of industrialization in in the working class in a way through characters like jack shafto um and especially Jack Shafto, or even Enoch Root, in a way, is is kind of someone with with a, a knowledge that goes way back in time. So, anyways, um, that's uh, 
this first chapter, Dartmouth, is basically involving Daniel and Thomas Newcomen um, and Will Comstock, who's the son of Roger Comstock. So someone that, that Daniel knew from his time in London, but I don't think we ever met him. He may have been mentioned, but it's not someone that we really uh, got to know too much before. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it's just, this is kind of a Rip Van Winkle story, uh, him coming back after 20 years. 15 years or so coming back to London and seeing the changes political in terms of religion, in terms of its, the nature of the Royal society, the nature of technology, right? So it's not surprising at the beginning of the industrial age. One of the first things Daniel experiences is an encounter with, with, uh, an industrial, like an early, one of the early inventors, uh, an early industrialist. In fact, the opening quote here is by none other than James Watt, quote, in life, there is nothing more foolish than inventing. Um, now, Will Comstock kind of directs him on English politics. So, so much of Solomon's gold is Daniel's like feeling out of place. He's like a man out of time almost. And in terms of politics, he just doesn't feel comfortable. He's really, there's a lot of anxiety in Daniel over, it's not as easy as just the Whigs and the Tories anymore because you got the question of the secession after Queen Anne dies and what all that means and there's different factions and you got the Jacobites and you got the Whigs and you got uh, the fear of the Germans like Newton is afraid of Germans but he's not a Jacobite he doesn't want the Stuarts secession but he also doesn't want the Germans coming in because of the Leibniz stuff so it's uh, there's a really kind of an unease uh, throughout this book and you see Daniel sort of filled with a lot of ennui about uh about the politics and and you know it's it's like when you're talking with someone who's really engaged in like some political issue and you couldn't care less or you don't really understand the issue and you just sort of get bored or or feel out of place in the conversation that's how daniel is at many times he thinks he's really here to resolve the calculus dispute or whatever in fact when he was on the ship minerva he was writing his history of when he first learned about Leibniz's and Newton's contributions to calculus but that's there's a lot of other things he's going to be involved with here in terms of politics there's a deeper issue um, there but it's he's he's out of place in in those kinds of conversations I get the sense um, so I don't know I can imagine this being like the least favorite book for many readers it's got that nice heist at the end but even that is is kind of disjointed and confusing at times and not the not as compelling as some of the stuff in the confusion um i don't know there's a lot to like about solomon's gold but it's also you know actually for such a long series you know it's surprising that like these are these because he's filling like a whole just one year of time and a thousand pages more or less he does stretch out descriptions and characters like there's a chapter in currency about caroline it's like 25 pages and it's just about Caroline, um, you know, at the moment of, of Sophie's death, right? Thinking about her place, her marriage, meeting Daniel briefly. But it's really stretched. Uh, and that's the case here, too. There's a lot of stretching of it. But it does feel that Neil Stevens is really able to get into the heads of these characters a little bit more and, and get uh, into the place and the smells and the... The costumes or the, the the clothing and all this detail, the gardens, how they're described, it's uh, it's much more meticulous. It's it's like we are en entering the Enlightenment, in a way. We're leaving the Baroque in a way, uh, 
or maybe this is the most baroque I, that's what i mean to say this is in some ways maybe the most baroque in terms of its descriptions but it's also uh in its meticulous observations of things it's entering sort of the enlightenment concepts too if that makes any sense to you I, it sort of does to me now will will sort of explains to daniel some of the political changes taking place how, how england is sort of always been awash with political changes and this isn't he's kind of saying you don't have to worry about it because it's just something that england goes through he writes this or he says this the ancient tumali pagan barrows pendragon battlegrounds druid altars roman watchtowers and the gouges of the earth wrought by the old men progressing west to east across the land retracing the land a path of the great flood in their search for tin all of it silently mocks london it says that there that before there were Whigs and Tories, before Roundheads and Cavaliers, Catholics and Protestants, nay, before Normans, Angles, and Saxons, long before Julius Caesar came to this island, there existed this commerce, a deep subterranean flow, a clothonic pulse of metal through primeval veins that grew like roots in this earth before Adam. We are only fleas gorging our petty appetites on the co courses through the narrowest and more superficial capillaries. Um... And Daniel asks, who wrote that? And he says, I did. Um, but he's talking about, like, the tin, right? So that's the mines they're at, and that's where they're trying to sell this. Well, I guess Will Comstock and Newcomen are trying to sell to the tin miners this engine for, you know, pumping steam with water. I, I forget the exact name he gives for it. But it's essentially the steam engine. But anyway, so nice commentary. I guess on, like, maybe he's saying, like, despite all the change of politics... There's this underhanging of the wealth of Britain and the commerce of Britain, which needs to be sustained, which is kind of going to lead, I think, to Newton and his running of the mint and all that stuff. Um, so they end up having a talk with the, I think it's here. No, I think it's, 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 it's later on. So the next chapter. Crocker, Crockturn Torn. Same day that's common in this book where a lot of chapters are set concurrently or really, you know, you know, one after the other, you know, like half of this book is set basically on one day. But Crocker Thorn later that day, it's it's a meeting with like Newcomen and Will Comstock, Will Comstock sort of leading it, talking to the tin miners, right? And they're talking about what is going to be the currency of, 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 Britain and some people say copper but most people there want it to be tin right now of course Newton meanwhile is is pushing gold right he wants the gold guinea being the, the foundation of the currency and he wants to push out all these other money types of money but the idea here is if if tin can be extracted more profitably from these mines then maybe it should be the coinage um Will Comstock says this, It's been years since silver coins were seen in the marketplace of this land. As many are minted as taken to the furnaces of the money goldsmiths and then turned over to the bullion and sent into the east. Gold guineas are the currency of England now. And that is too great a denomination for common folks to use in their dealings. Smaller coins are wanted. Will they be minted or of copper or of tin? And they're saying they want tin. So this is about smaller denomination uh, money. Not silver, not gold, but, but like the local little pennies and things. So anyways, right away, uh, Daniel Waterhouse is getting kind of mixed up in, in the politics, but also the changes taking place in the land, the changes in the currency and the really the emergence of, of an industrial society uh, reflected in the, the arrival of Newcomen. He's kind of a cameo character. 
but I think it's a significant cameo because uh, I think Neil Stevenson isn't just thinking about science uh, and technology. He's also thinking of economics so much, right? Not just not just commercial capitalism, which has already been well developed by the Dutch and the English by this point in the story. Um, and you saw Eliza manipulating that throughout the whole tale, but even moving forward to industrial um, institutions. Then we have a short chapter at the place called the Saracen's Head, uh, which is just like a local inn or a pub or something. Um, and Daniel basically tells Will, Will, Will Comstock, who he's getting a little bit bored with, frankly, he said, with especially all the politics uh, that Will was talking about. He says, he basically says, I'm going to go with this guy, Mr. Threader, uh, to London. Now, it turns out Mr. Threader was the, was it Roger Comstock's father? Um, way back, you know, during the plague years, his Scrivener. So there, there was even a scene way back in Quicksilver where while Daniel would go out during the plague to get stuff for the Royal Society, he'd see like one car on the street, one cart, and it was the Scrivener. He even remembers the symbol, which was like Threader's father. So this Threader family has been the Scrivener for the Comstocks um, throughout history. But he says he, he's who I'm going to go back with. Uh, and he has to go to London anyways. But as we'll see in the next chapter, it's kind of out of the fire into the out of the frying pan into the fire kind of situation because Daniel gets more and more embroiled in contentious political talk in this very, very long chapter, which takes our hero and Mr. Threader to to London. It's, it's about 30 pages long or well, one chapter uh, just covering most of late January 1714. It's just called Southern England. It's just from from. Um, from Dartmoor all the way to, to to London. So they got a lot of time to get to know each other and to talk. Um, and one of the things that's established is this connection between the Comstocks and the Threader family. Um, he's also doing a lot of suspicious kind of dealing along the way, talk, getting off. It's a very slow trip because he's making a lot of stops and interrogating, asking local people, and there seems to be money exchange. So... He seems a little bit uh, suspicious. Uh, there's even a, it's a really, makes it a little, makes, makes the trip really slow. There's this joke about how quick Drake Waterhouse once made the similar trip um, back in the revolutionary times, and now it takes even longer. Um, but it's because the area is sort of being developed, and there's a lot of stops on the way for Mr. Threader to do various kinds of, of shady, shady business. So I don't know how much I want to talk about this chapter, actually. it's uh, You kind of feel uh, Daniel's frustration with that he doesn't really understand who he's offending by saying certain things or, or what political ground he's touching on. Um, you know, there's a lot of things he's learning along the way, like the relationship between the niece of Isaac Newton and Roger Comstock, that basically she's his mistress now. Um, you know... A lot about like changing religious politics that even comes up later because it's this is like the beginning of the great awakening right in the early 18th century and you get these new dissenting churches emerging after the freedom of conscience was you know became law in six, 1689 or whatever it wasn't just the puritans who benefited from that but it was all these other dissenting churches the methodists and the baptists and then you see the beginning of, of of that kind of more evangelical type of of religion and the puritans end up looking kind of like old fogies um, 
in the context. I don't. That's not so much in this chapter, but I think it's later, like in the shipyards and things. Um, but anyways, it's it's a pretty long chapter. That's this kind of tour of London, but mostly it's a tour. It's a chance for um, Daniel to learn some things. So they get to London, and Daniel asks to be taken to the Royal Society. And uh, when he's there, actually, the luggage cart that they're with explodes. And so they brought on some of Threader's luggage along the way. And apparently it had this bomb in it. So it's going to be called an infernal device throughout the book. And it's not going to be the last one we run into. Basically, these are phosphorus bombs. And if you know who can make phosphorus, you know who this is being associated with, right? Um, you know, an alchemist or Jack Shafto. Right, so you got you know, Dejex is involved in some way with with Jack's schemes in London, so you know, but it's you know, Jack knows how to make phosphorus with urine. It even comes up the methods that he may have involved in in collecting the urine to boil it down into the phosphorus, just like he did in India. So he's able to use these techniques, but now it's combined with you know, clock making, which wasn't Jack's expertise, right? Which is what makes kind of Saturn. Uh, a bit of a suspicious character in this because we're going to meet him next episode, I guess. But he's a watchmaker, right? And he's kind of hard on his luck. He's become a bit of a bandit. You know, maybe this combining these different knowledges will allow these to make people to make these bombs. Um, but anyways, someone tries to either it's either trying to kill Daniel or or Mr. Threader. Um, but Daniel ends up really shaken by this, right? The question is like really who is the target, um, and you know, and he doesn't know. He even concludes at the end, maybe it's me, right? He, he couldn't really bet on who the target of this infernal device was. All right. Um, then we jump to early February 1714 in Crane Court. And Daniel Waterhouse has been, you know, spends two weeks at the World Society. And a lot of this he's recovering. Uh, our quote for this chapter comes from John Bunyan's A Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress. And it is... But what should be the reason that such a good man should be all his day so much in the dark? Um, which I think is a good description of where Daniel is at this point in his life. He's in the dark about almost everything that's going on around him. Um, but he's resting. And finally he gets some mail. He doesn't get mail from Massachusetts, which he seemed to sort of want. Mail from his family, but it's too early. But he does get mail from like Eliza um, and Leibniz. People who know he's come to London and want to engage his his services in some way or at least touch base with them so he gets this big packet of mail it's got the letter from eliza a long letter from leibniz um and uh, a bunch of pamphlets from the calculus debate right so basically newton apparently prepared that for him all the back and forth between the leibniz folks and the newton folks you know ostensibly it's to show uh waterhouse this is what the debate is, and you know what side you should be on, right? It's kind of greasing. Um, you know, the idea is maybe Daniel will have to be a witness in some kind of trial or some kind of uh, resolution of this conflict, and they want to make she wants to make sure Daniel's up to speed on how just how evil and nasty those Leibniz folks are, I guess. So Eliza doesn't say much. I think she's just passing on the letter from Leibniz, but she does say she's she's bought the Leicester house which was the old house of Elizabeth Stewart the Winter Queen right and of course the Winter Queen side of the Sophie um, line and we know her connections to that that line through through her German German connections but anyways um, so Eliza's in London now too um, that's the other thing that's clear here um, 
she's been kind of going back between Hanover and London and being in London, she's delivered this letter. Now this is Leibniz's letter and it's super long and the vast majority of it, he kind of says, I don't want to be rude and just ask for help right away. But he instead gives a really long story about his time in the court of, of Peter the Great. Um, and Peter the Great uh, is this really macho guy and he's really into physical activity and shooting and fighting and stuff like that. Uh, war games and all that. And Leibniz really felt out of place in that. But you get the sense of how just in some ways very medieval the court is. But I heard like this, the Charles or Charles the Twelfth of Sweden was very also macho this way. He also, he died young, um, but, he, but like Peter the Great became king quite young. Um, maybe he was even younger, right? But he was this absolutist monarch of the time and he fought all these wars and he, you know, his court was really sort of this macho thing too. But uh, Leibniz has all the stories for, um, for Daniel about his time in, in St. Petersburg. Um, but ultimately he comes to his quest, his help. And he says like, I'm trying to, I'm basically hired as an advisor to Peter the Great and they're trying to build their own kind of natural philosophy tradition their own science so just send whatever junk whatever you and the royal society no longer need uh just pack it up and ship it over to st petersburg and that's that's the favor he's essentially asked he doesn't come out and really ask for uh too much help on the 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 calculus question he's 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 kind of you know, doesn't want to like, I guess it, it is the contrast to Newton who gives him is really trying to push him to, to one side. Leibniz uh, seems to be more open to an objective resolution to the debate. He doesn't want to make, he doesn't want to put Waterhouse in the position of having to, you know, side with his friend uh, on one side versus his, his former friend and acquaintance, uh, Isaac Newton. So then, uh, after getting all this mail, he gets dressed, and there's a long section here about him getting dressed, and he has to get dressed in the new style, the new fashion. It's like the smaller powdered wigs are now in fashion in in London, and he has to dress up. I guess he lost a lot of his clothes in the cart, too, so he had to get a whole new wardrobe or whatever. And maybe Roger Comstock helps him out with that a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff in this volume just flow together, I guess. Unlike the, the other ones, I think each scene is a lot more memorable here. It's it's a lot more of a talky uh, novel with a lot of descriptions of, of places, but it's it doesn't have that pace, I think, of some of the other volumes. Uh, so if I mix up the order of things, so, uh, I apologize for that. But anyways, he goes to the Royal Society um, basically to, uh, to collect, to, to get an inventory of what kind of science junk is there. And what he finds is that the Royal Society is in pretty sorry shape. Um, Newton's been focusing on the mint. There really isn't anyone from the earlier generation. Like, Hook has died. Christopher Wren is really super old. Um, he'll die before the end of this volume. He dies in 1714. Waterhouse was gone for 20 years uh, from the Royal Society. It doesn't have that same kind of clouded head under the days of Charles II. Um, the secretaries, the workers there really don't know what's all involved and what's precious and what's not. And it's all sort of dumped in an attic or whatever. And 
Waterhouse is kind of horrified by this. He, he, he thinks if I had time, you know, someone's got to really go through this. But instead, he just sort of sets aside a bunch of stuff that he can send to Leibniz in Saint, or send to St. Petersburg. Um, and then at the end of this chapter, um, he meets with uh, Roger Comstock. And they talk about some politics, again, uh, Queen Anne and Sophie and, and the secession and what that's going to mean for these people individually but he says i need your help on something and I, I think you know while you're here let's form a prize a contest of sorts to solve the longitude problem and then he says you know what i want to offer a big prize i want you know i want to arrange for a, a lot of money to go to some whoever wins the longitude prize and i want that to be me i want to make sure that i'm the one who gets it and it's going to be the Massachusetts Bay Institute of Technological Arts, which I founded, that is going to find this, and therefore I am going to be the one who's really honored as the one solving the, the longitude um, problem, right? And, so, you know, the details of the longitude problem are explored in this book in various times. It's like there's the clock method to do that, but the clocks weren't necessarily accurate enough to really figure it out. And then the astronomical observations to use like the moon or the stars or whatever to figure out the longitude. I guess it's the moon. And the calculations involved are so massive, you need you need these huge books, right, to cross-reference all the observations with um, all that. So it's really complicated. And Daniel's idea is, um, let's just put essentially a computer on each ship that can do all these calculations and can compute the longitude based on some observations you can put in there. And that, of course, would be a big boon for um, the technology because every ship would have been wanted and have it because it would make your trips safer. It would help with navigation or whatever. So it would help with commerce. So all ships would have it, and that would be you know, a huge payout for whoever you know, could have the patent to it. And that's what uh, Roger Comstock wants. So even late in his life, and he's got brand new teeth, but otherwise he's kind of old and decrepit by this point, just like Daniel sort of is, but it's he still got this ambition to to solve the longitude problem um roger's a good guy he's, he's not a you know he's a little self-centered at times but he's more or less a good guy all right our next chapter picks up in late february 1714 in london um and this is a meeting with christopher wren um basically he's asking about Royal Society stuff. He's still running this errand for Leibniz to get the stuff to Russia. And he asks, like, where's Hook's stuff? And Wren doesn't really know. Again, this is just kind of a tragedy because all the work of the Royal Society is not lost. Of course, there's still the published results and all that. Um, you know, and there's still people staying on the shoulders of giants. But it's it's kind of dispersed. Really, the heyday of the Royal Society is over, it seems. And, and really, when this generation dies, Waterhouse, Wren, Hook is already dead. Wilkins, of course, died years ago. Newton's distracted by the mint and alchemy. It's, um, you know, and you got that calculus dispute that's kind of overhanging the whole thing. Um, and that's like, I think that's another kind of theme in the book, maybe hinted at, is how stupid the calculus dispute was. Because, you know, I don't know Stevenson's politics on things like copyright and patents and things like that. But the Royal Society shared knowledge, right? That was, remember the Hook Oldenburg dispute Oldenburg was passing natural philosophical information to continental savants um, and hooked in and thought he was like you're, you're stealing my watch idea or whatever and giving it to Huygens 
but that's but for Oldenburg, it was just sharing the knowledge with other people, right? Spreading new new discoveries. Um, but if the whole point of the calculus debate is like who has the patent on calculus, and it's kind of a stupid discussion to have. And now no one really cares, right? Everyone sort of admits it was a, a you know, they each figured out their own thing for their own purposes uh, autonomously. You know, no one stole it from anyone. But anyways, there's no more hook stuff. Um, and then he goes off to uh, um, is this when he goes off to the docks? Uh, or he goes to Rotherhithe, which is like to the to the shipyards. Uh, so he does head down to the shipyards because he's got to make a deal with uh, the Minerva and all that. Um, and he meets uh, like this Puritan, Brother Norman. And I think this is a nice moment where you just see the changing nature of religion, where there is there is a rise of this more evangelical style of religion that's even replaced in the Puritan style. And this Brother Norman and Waterhouse seem like old fogies um, in contrast to them. Um, but eventually he, he gets to the docks or the shipyards and he, he's, he gets a letter to Van Hook that says like, oh, I have a couple jobs for you. One is to take all this science shit to St. Petersburg um, and I also need you to like collect all my junk in, um, in, um, in Massachusetts, all the stuff from the Massachusetts Bay Institute of Technological Arts, all this logic mill stuff and bring that back as well. So he hires uh, Van Hook to do that. Or at least he offers a job to Van Hook about that. Uh, the next chapter is Mr. White's baiting ring half an hour later. Um, and, um, here we see this uh, this Tory, Mr. White, beat up on stage, right? Um, remember the ear-biting thing? That's sort of revisited in this section. There's these, like, public brawls and, and all this. It's not really the violence of politics. Is, 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 it's kind of brutal here, right? This is the century of mob politics, right? If you think of even just how violent the American Revolution was in its day-to-day -day protests and all that. The burning of effigies was part of it, but also like tarring and feathering people and beating up governors and running them out of their homes and big mob actions. It really makes Daniel feel really, really uncomfortable. But I noticed something else in this section which I found uh, kind of important, and that is just how many immigrants there are in London now. It's like a more diverse place. You have all these Russian immigrants um, hanging out there. Um, so then he seeks out uh, Bob Shafto. Um, he actually asked around about like, is there any, uh, I knew this guy back in the day and someone says like, there's only one guy around from those days who's still a soldier, it's Sergeant Bob. So Bob Shafto, still not promoted because he's non-commissioned. I guess that's as high as he can go. Uh, he's now got a job guarding the mint, um, which if you know what's coming, it's kind of interesting because it's going to put Bob Shafto and uh, and Jack Shafto kind of on opposite sides here, um, but he's got this. He's got a job basically guarding at the mint, and and Daniel's able to kind of meet up with him. Kind of gives him a little bit more security to meet someone, you know, a friend from the old old days who who maybe is some form of continuity with the old old epoch. Um, then he gets a letter from Van Hoke saying, we'll, we'll carry your freight. Um, and he says, you got to meet with DAPA later to work out the contract. 
And then the final chapter I want to talk about today is uh, Daniel at Orney Shipyards, uh, March 12th, 1714. Um, so it's a little bit later. Um, a couple weeks later. And he's dealing, I think here he's there, he's, he's kind of delivering the science crap. I think it's called science crap in the book. He's delivering the science crap uh, to the ship that's going to take it um, to, to St. Petersburg. Maybe, I don't think, maybe that's not Van Hoek. Maybe it was a different ship that was going to carry that stuff. So he's working that out. Um, and he meets this guy, Mr. Kilkin and Mr. Orney, who kind of runs the shipyards. And there's a bombing there. And he finds out about this bombing. It's another infernal device that went off destroying um, a ship. And Daniel decides he's going to uh, form a club that's going to investigate this bombing and find out what's, who's, who's trying to kill these people and why and who's behind it. So it kind of becomes a detective story uh, after 100 pages into this, this book. So anyways, Solomon's Gold. Uh, I don't know, like it's... If you don't like Daniel Waterhouse as a character, or if you're not too into him, this could be a tough book to read, I guess. It's... Um, it's just so much slower than the rest of the books we've read um, and extended. Think of like how much happens in the first hundred pages of Quicksilver or the first hundred pages of King of the Vagabonds um, or, or especially like the first hundred pages of, of or take any hundred pages of the confusion, how much happens compared to here, which is just Daniel goes to London, talks to a lot of people and, and runs an errand for Leibniz. That's all that really happens. But there's a lot of conversations that just, at make Daniel feel out of place, uh, whether it's politically or in terms of religion, but particularly politics. He's just increasingly fearful. There's a one point, I think it's later in this book, but he says, like, everyone seems kind of scared of what's going to happen, like, with this Hanoverian secession. It's a really uncertain time, and it's affecting people. Now, you could be Will Comstock and be philosophical about it and say, like, the earth of England will abide anything. But in your actual lived experiences, these things matter. And, and it's not certain what's going to come with the arrival of these, these Germans. So anyways, by, f by, far, by far not my favorite book in the series. Um, actually, I think I like Odalisk rereading this. I like Odalisk more than, than this one. Um, but, um, but anyways, it's, it's Stevenson doing something a little bit different from, um, from the other from the first two volumes. So I guess that's good. It kind of has a different flavor to it. But anyways, uh, in the next episode, we'll talk about, um, I guess we'll go right up to that uh, April 23rd heist. So the heist happens on April 23rd, the heist at the Mint, Jack Shafto's heist. So basically the next 100 pages focus on the investigation um, that Daniel leads into the bombings and he meets Saturn. So maybe Saturn is the most interesting thing that's gonna come up in the next episode. But I'm going to leave it at this for now. I'm um, not going to drag this out any more than I need to. So anyways, uh, I guess I'll be it for now. I'll see you next time.